What does convenience really mean? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Hello, it's episode 85, and thank you, as always, for listening. Today, I'm talking to India Hamilton, co-founder of Scoop, a circular economy food cooperative on the island of Jersey, near the coast of northwest France. Scoop, the Sustainable Cooperative Limited, is a zero-waste shop that believes everyone on the island has a right to good food. India and I had a very enjoyable long conversation and so I've decided to break it into two episodes. This episode, 85, and a bonus episode that I'll release just afterwards. For this episode, I've included the main elements of our discussion about Scoop. So we'll hear about what Scoop does and why and how it got started. How Scoop goes beyond the provision of local, healthy and sustainable food and is embedding circular solutions across the business, for example with packaging. We find out how the business survived during lockdown and hear about India's counterintuitive conclusions about the meaning of convenience. In the bonus episode, we talk about the context of Scoop, including Jersey's history, key crops and the challenges that raises for farmers and how that's informed Scoop's founding principles. We hear how India realised permaculture principles could unlock these challenges. The bonus episode also includes more on membership models and loyalty, the challenges of regulations for small businesses, and why India loves compliance officers. We discuss why it's important to support your local economy, and how exploitative capitalism is undermining that. So, back to episode 85 and the main conversation with India Hamilton about Scoop. And I'll catch up with you afterwards with my thoughts on our conversation. Scoop is a, a, essentially a food shop um, in, a, in Jersey. And it's part of a community movement that believes that small-scale, localised food economies are part of our future. Um, we, a bunch of people met uh, in 2017 and 18, all kind of sharing the same journey, um, which was this, I, this desire to find and eat and be a part of a food community within Jersey. And it felt like it was really missing at a particular grassroots level. Um, a lot of people had their different journeys into Scoop and how it was created. And mine specifically was um, from a position of a chef. Um, I was part of a food project which was doing really well in Hyderabad, uh, where I learned about um, the food system and how the localised food system can play a role in supporting 
uh, small-scale agriculture or destroying small-scale agriculture. So I was coming at it at a very technical level. Um, and yeah, about 2018, we opened and we have um, near on 250 members um, that partake in this food movement um, where we're supplied by, over, his, over the time, we've been supplied by 104 different producers um, locally. And we work with about a range of different farmers, no matter how small they, they are. Um, yeah. And are those producers, they're, they're all um, in Jersey? Um, well, we, we import from, we build relationships from um, people who trade. It's not a part of ignoring trade. Um, we, we have to build a comprehensive service for mm -hmm. our members, mm -hmm. but it's all designed to build the market for the localized, the local farmers um, who farm in, who farm in a relationship with the land using ecological principles, focus on biodiversity, um, who some are organic association, regist organic association registered. Um, but when you, you relate to farmers on a kind of context of a worldview and the worldview is essentially ecological and connected and part of a community. So that's very much a part of the, the farming practices that we work with. So that's what you're mostly looking for when you talk to a um you know, a new a new producer or trader to be part of the network. You're looking to understand what their worldview is, and whether it aligns with the values of Scoop and the and the community members. Is that am um, I understanding yeah, that right? I think I think it just emerges of a shared of, of shared values. Mm. Um, it's kind of strange. So it, as part of our research. It was a group of farmers who've been who've been quite kind of abused by the conditions of the market. Um, they produce food in this very caring way for the planet, but the market really is dysfunctional for it. Um, and as a over time, they've been quite marginalised and feel quite dejected by progress. I think. Um, but I kind of sat back and thought, but that's my favourite farming. Mm. And instead of telling them to change. Can I tell the conditions of the market to change? And can I reshape how the market relates to these farmers so they're valued in it? And when I did my research around Scoop, um, I was looking at kind of the food system in its entirety and asking questions around how each part of the food systems interacts with doing better themselves, mm. how they move forward to do better. And what was really interesting in that research was everybody wants to do better and have the, these most amazing organic farmers be a part of the picture. But when you look at it systemically, you realize that there were loads of structural barriers to their success. So that, so that kind of took you back to, to Jersey in 2017 then. And so how did you get off the ground then? What, what, how did you bring people into this idea or what, what came first? So I landed and 
I w- and out of nowhere, I met um, Casper, Wimbley and Susanna, um, who had started a agricultural laboratory um, artist residency program in Jersey, asking these uh, questions. And it was called The Morning Boat. And they had like 500 applications from around the world. And they cherry picked some incredible artists to come over and create these really deep relationships and understandings and stories and visions, basically, um, with different um, communities within Jersey. And what was really nice about the artists coming in is they didn't have the tensions and the, the kind of the restrictions over what what the narratives in Jersey they just saw things and thought they were great and got on with talking to them and it was through that pro it was through that program that I met Casper and Susanna and it was through that that they had found the shop that was empty and they had decided to open the shop and it just so happens that we met and then I had all the tools learned from India um from the Hydrabad project that could that could engineer, they had insights into the work, to projects that were happening in Jersey about um, new ways of looking at membership and community building. That's very much their thing. And then I had this kind of structural kind of modeling approach of how to kind of run the business um, and understand the kind of systemic issues of the island that we needed to address. Um, So that kind of, And then there was other groups who were like, we want to help because we want to grow and we want to be a part of this. Um, And then a maths teacher who helped us, who helped us with, um, who helped us with understanding the accounts (laughs) in a a really creative, like creative way. Um, So it just sort of, it was a group of people that came together without expectation at, mm. at one time by coincidence in a way it reminds me of of a saying i love which is you set your mind in a direction and then fate steps in to lend a hand you know in terms of these serendipitous meetings with other people and to find out that they have similar visions and different skills and so on and you you, you mentioned your maths teacher um, and i'd like to find out more about the funding and commercial model um, so perhaps you could explain a bit about how that works. So and his name is Andy and he was given the task <laughs> to, because um, we didn't know what we were going to sell. So we couldn't work to a profit and loss, really. So he was under task to to kind of ask the question, what is the tipping point of how many members of the community do we need to be functioning with us to be successful? Um, and then from that, what are the what are the needs of those communities so we can reduce the financial barriers for certain for certain groups to be part of that journey? So he was tasked to kind of work this out, <laughs> and he did it. Um, and this and the strategy is in openness is a family or a household roughly buy five to eight thousand pounds worth of food a year that's probably quite a lot um we went we thought we 
needed to build a relationship with one family and aim for half of their um, yearly expenditure on food. And so what does that mean? That's fantastic. They, that family, for us rewarding them with a very tailored shop, they would provide us with a membership fee, um, which they pay up front. And in return for that membership fee, they then get 25% of everything. So they, so Andy had to work out how many families we needed to be working like that as a function and to open. And he said 150. Um, and we have, we have a set, we basically mark up everything 50% and then discount it 25% for everyone. So we're making about 11 and a half um, pence in the pound mm. in products um, for, the non for the members. <clears throat> and what we did was we did a crowdfunder, which wasn't really crowding money, it was crowding crowds. Um, and through that, we needed to find 150 people who would be willing. And we raised 25,000 through that. Um, and though that money went back into the community through discounts over the period of three or four months. Um, so actually they were willing to spend between, we, the monthly fee is about between five pounds and 35 pounds a month, depending on your household. Right. And um, if you run income support. Okay. So he worked out that we needed 150 people and without going into debt, he calculated it, and at the end of the first year, we had turned over 320, which is roughly 50%, 320,000, which is roughly 50% of the expenditure of those 150 people. Right. So it, it, although, it, although in close analysis, it's not as simple as that, but it was pretty much, mm. um, it was an equation that worked. So just to make sure I understand, so you have a group of members who get discount, who pay pay a membership fee and they mm. get discounts. And then you also sell to the general public who might come in once a year, once a month or, you know, once Whenever a week. Whenever they fancy. Yeah. So the more you are involved with this, the kind of better value it is. Mm. But when we, did a, when we did a bit of research, a bit of research, when we did the research, um, one of the things that came up when we spoke to consumers was they'll just, if they don't have much time, they'll pop to a supermarket that's because they're quite conveniently placed, the supermarkets. Um, and they will pick up just to get one thing and pick up everything. And often when it's hotter, they'll do that. Mm. And so without this kind of monthly fee, that we were using to pay our bills, that decision made a big difference to, to a big difference to a farm shop. And I, we kind of thought, well, how do we make that behavior not problematic to us? And this is when this membership fee mm. was, is, has played an integral role because it covers a lot of our running costs. Yeah. So we wanted the, uh, the, we wanted the, people involved to be not feel guilty about just popping into the that supermarket but also in us for always to be there looking fresh and full each time that they came back mm. 
so it, it was really to tackle that issue. And coming back to, to how Scoops evolved over the last few years, you now offer a whole range of different services, including cleaning glass jars and bottles so they can be reused and helping people's or helping transit packaging from companies get reused. Can you talk us through some of those experiments that you've launched and, and what's worked and maybe maybe some that you struggled with? Yeah, so um, we are a we are a circular economy business um, because you it's about it's productivity with a small p isn't it you've got to look at resources at every node of your system um so that's what we are um we also are part of the kind of guided bit by this project called the chef manifesto which is the um the practical use of this is all of the sustainable development goals that have been synthesized in for food businesses and one of their points is about um upholding and teaching about compliance and essentially environmental health and food safety as integral to sustainability. So what we kind of understand is that, again, sustainability is a process, it's not a product. And we have designed our compliance and our strategies to be circular. So compliance, I think, from environmental health is quite a, seen as a, a relatively boring job but when you tie it to sustainability and future modeling um it's very exciting so we sat down and wrote a 25 page document of compliance for all of our waste streams and started to kind of imagine how to how to deal with them and what things can we put in place and one thing that came up was is, and it's sort of called the scoop loop so it's it's kind of that's a policy framework and lots and lots of different projects have come out of that when you really open up there's there's loads of things um there's loads of processes that come out of that but the key ones have been um with packaging so we have a glass glass bottle drop-off site glass jar drop-off site it goes in it gets cleaned and then these this then gets used for jarring the processes that the products that we we make from surplus and from stuff that's slightly missed its time on the shop so that in itself is circular so we create a whole bunch of products but they they're not products that are designed by recipes they're designed by process so we've got about 10 different products in the range from kimchi to soups to chili sauces but in the last year and a half we've made 675 recipes because everything different is coming in all the time and through our so the environmental health officers like what <laughs> so we've then got to go no this is safe and this is how we're going to deal with this and this is our policies this is our practice this is how people find the information and so we use a barcode a, a hashtag number for people to trace track and go digitalize the recipes and we use it wax so it can be cleaned so we've kind of wax to seal the the lid on them or um no to write the code on oh okay so it's it's it was an experiment in a circular system with lots of things in place um that have had to be thought through at every stage 
Um, but it's really working. And what we've worked out is that cleaning a glass jar and a tiffin box for the, you know, a, a reusable container is cost 40p a unit with an employment um, of, you know, with personnel involved. And if you go to the local traders to buy a sustainable container, that's 75p a unit. When lockdown happened, um, that posed challenges for Scoop because it's such a, you know, community-based business and thrives on the, um, you know, the real face-to-face relationships and so on. Um, and we talked about convenience um, and um, and you talked about the lack of convenience being the USP of Scoop, which is kind of counterintuitive for most of us. So maybe you could um, unpack that a bit for us, you know, what happened in lockdown and what, and what you decided was important. The, well, that's it's been a big journey because I think we spoke about that. Um, and I've really, it really, the, our initial conversation kind of encouraged me to really kind of unpick that. Um, Scoop is the most inconvenient shop in the world. <laughs> um, and our, our till system, it takes ages. And we talk a lot. Um, and yeah, the guy behind the till said to me yesterday, we're essentially paid to talk. Um, and that's really pleasant. So Scoop hit, I mean, COVID hit and our community responded phenomenally. There's no question. Um, within one day, we had, one day, we had a online service using lists and emails, 700 products going out to 250 households a week. Um, We had 15 people across our packing and um, car distribution line. Um, It was radically quick, super easy. And, and in terms of relying on, I mean, it probably would have saved paper if we had a fax machine and we were still on the fax on the fax kind of world it would have been easier um and it was uh you could see we sold more food we reached more people um and it was we doubled our turnover that day um and our our systems really had to mature and they did and we professionalized um sort of overnight really um but within three weeks we just missed the people um, and the people missed us. And in a very deep way, they were worried that they couldn't work, they couldn't come to a community in a safe way and get those biological interactions. You know, there was young mothers with children who wanted to be able to shop and be in places because that fertility landscape is important to them um all of these things were crucial so we we went back on we went back to being a shop putting all the safety protocols that that were required and it really got me understand trying to work out what what inconvenience what 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 that means in the kind of context so I just did a bit of research and I typed in convenience in and get the dictionary definition. And it was um, the ability to do something with ease. And what I think's happened in the commercial world 
um, designed by the Amazons of the world, that convenience has become the ability to do something with ease quickly. And that's been added on by capitalism. That's nothing to do with the concept of convenience. So we, we've decided to value interaction over transaction. And in the time we've been given, we have learned an awful lot about people. We've learned more about sustainability because sustainability issues come to us through our community and they talk about it. And then we respond in kind by working out, should we sell this product? Should we get rid of it? Should we find a, a better alternative? And that's what we do. We've built a trust around sustainability. We've built lots of different concepts and routes into sustainability, if it be from Porsche control to carbon to biodiversity to uh, kind of workers' rights and all of the complex, you know, sustainability is not carbon. It is at least 144 different metrics determined by the sustainable development goals. And we need to be doing them all in any given time. And so I realized at the end that actually we've created a highly convenient shop if convenience was the ease to be sustainable. So we clawed back time from the consumer and this is what we came up with. So our strategy now being the most inconvenient shop in the world, we have all the time, we own the time commodity, which is a huge one, especially when it costs to home deliver. It's a huge one. So we've got to pick how we spend that time and where we spend it and who we spend it on. And is it best spent on um, as a tool to increase the barrier into this way of shopping? So should we spend our time communicating with, with groups that don't normally access this sort of food instead of people who love this food, just want it home delivered, who aren't willing to come to us yet. So, so we're at the moment thinking, actually, let's find different community groups to go and be more convenient for them and go and meet them where they're at and help them come onto this journey with us. Um, so that's, um, that's kind of how we look at our convenience um, and our relationships with that. Mm, that's so really the convenience of time is is doesn't mean <laughs> convenience. Mm. And I guess it's thinking about the broader set of needs that people have. You know, you mentioned the young mothers. So their visit to the shop is not just about buying the food. It's about having a social interaction that they might not get if they were, and particularly in lockdown, um, mm. you know, stuck at home homeschooling the kids. So that's that's fascinating, and and um, you know, I'm, I'm sensing that this convenience inconvenience thing is something that you're going to do more work on and more research around, kind of getting under the skin of it. So I'm looking forward well, to seeing where that where that goes. Just, just so, I think it's really important for people to really, the market signal says home deliver. And so these small businesses are being impacted to think about that home delivery because that's what the market is saying. And there's no honesty in the figures with these things. 
And it can be, it could really severely destroy your small business that you've been created because of this market market signal. And the, the truth is we've got this food crisis issue around the cost of living. COVID thrusted into spending to go online and it like 20 years before we were ready to. And I think possibly a lot of bad spending was done by these big supermarkets to do that. And part of covering those costs might be being pushed onto the consumer or the farmer. Mm. The lack of transparency around it, because I, I saw with my own eyes how much money it costs and how we just can't do it. Let's move on to the uh, the question of, you know, if you, if you were talking to, and I'm sure you, you have these conversations lots of times, so another business that wants to start something circular or go more circular with their own model, um, mm-hmm. what advice do you typically give? Think about always kind of, um, well, I, I, this is obviously whatever whatever business, sit down from a compliance perspective and imagine all of your waste streams. Um, and that's time, um, brain power. <laughs> it's, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you, there's loads of, um, waste streams within that are underutilized within your business. Um, and, and it, it could be slightly boring work, but there is so much opportunity and kind of how you function. Um, so yeah, really break it down and think creatively about each waste stream and do the work in the compliance to be creative. Understand that you, when you say you're a circular businesses, circular business, you need to build relationships with other business who also want to be circular. And some businesses are really on that journey. So you can connect with them super easy and work processes back and forward. Like we have a great one with Ceci, um, which is a cleaning product, circular company. Transportation is required back and forth. So if you're a kind of an import community there is a lot of waste space going out so you can start to build those circular circular movements um and yeah that i think that's it is kind of partnerships being open and just thinking of all of those opportunities um of of circular design Mm. Um, and then write that compliance yeah Um, yeah, so you kind of got the got the process nailed, and you and you're looking at the productivity of of all the resources. You know, how can you get more value out of things that are under underutilized, whether that's packaging or transport or whatever. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I mean, this is quite an odd thing to say, but I wrote this. I wrote this as a. Um, I wrote this to try and get in to do a master's a few years ago, in, but it was like my admissions paper. But it was just the the idea that um, the bin in itself is like no more real than Father Christmas. Um, It was born in 1845 and put in a dictionary then. And it allows us to imagine that we can throw something away and buy something new. Um, And it's not true. 
Um, so it's a real kind of myth of our economic system um, that we need to accept and let go of. Brilliant. I love that. <laughs> the bin is a myth. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's, no more real than Santa Claus. Uh, yeah, that, that's got that's got legs as, as something to dig into. Um, so, India, who would you would you recommend somebody as a future guest, or do you have a favourite circular economy example that you'd like to share with everyone? Um, I would love to um, in suggest um, Kavita Mantha, um, who is who I worked with in Hyderabad. And she runs, um, she's a restaurateur, she's a, she's a lover of food. Um, she is conscious of her role um, to act and empowered to do so. Um, and I learned an awful lot from her and we opened a restaurant together, um, which was all about farm to table circular systems. Um, and I think she will be brilliant. Great. Okay. Well, I'll I'll hook up afterwards to get her contact details. Thank you. And India, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing to help us create a better world, what would that be? I didn't read that quick by a question. <laughs> well, it's put you on the spot. Then. <laughs> yeah, it really has put me. I really has put me on the spot. Um. The ability for people to be comfortable um, trusting others. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And lastly, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and find out more about Scoop? Um, we we function the best on Facebook. Um, the reason why it's really place based. Um, so you can find us there. Uh, Scoop the Sustainable Cooperative. Instagram is is a kind of semi disaster because it's so it's sort of all the way out there. But yeah, Facebook. Um, and then yeah, that's where you can find us. Great. Okay, and well, I'll put that link in the show notes as well. And thanks ever so much for talking to us about the journey of Scoop so far. I'm sure there's lots more to come. And I'm looking forward to finding out about that and reading more of the um, the impact report that, that you shared on on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago, um, which is fascinating and, and very helpful, I think, for a whole range of businesses, food related and otherwise. So thanks very much, India, and good luck with the next phase. Uh, my pleasure. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I was fascinated to learn about the way that India and her co-founders looked at the food system itself to examine which parts have become dysfunctional for both customers and producers, and then to get clear on the structural barriers blocking the connections between those farmers growing in ways that are better for people and nature and the people who want to eat healthy local seasonal produce. The thinking behind the financial model created by Andy, the school teacher, intrigued me too, working out how many people in the community would need to be actively involved, understanding the needs of the different demographic groups within that community, and calculating the financial barriers and how they might overcome those. The critical element was working out a figure for scoop share of a family's food spend, so that the business could be viable. 
What struck me most, though, was India's thinking on the meaning of convenience. We've been led to believe it's all about speed, rather than the true definition to do something with ease. When we take time to think about what we really need and what we want to do, for many people there are several layers to that. For food, most of us want more than just the right number of calories, or even for it to taste good. We want to buy local, seasonal, fresh and nutritious food that's been grown without pesticides and fossil fertilisers, and that provides a fair wage to farmers and everyone else in the supply chain. Is speed important in that context? Most of the time, it's not. There's even a slow food movement advocating for good, clean, fair food for all. A quick update from me at Rethink. I've had some tiny but what feel like important breakthroughs with the book. Finding theories that resonate with my thinking on what successful business should deliver for people, planet and prosperity. But I still feel as if I'm only moving forward at a snail's pace. I am trying to get a newsletter out, though, for the first time in months. So that's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, India Hamilton, co-founder of Scoop. And thank you for listening. Thanks also to Ellis Judalova of Olio for in- introducing me to India. You can hear my conversation with Ellis about Olio back in episode 58. You can find out how to follow India Hamilton and Scoop and check out the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies, or for a market sector, or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com, and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two, or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities, with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice, and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. <music>